Our scripture lesson for this morning is in your worship bulletin, and I invite you to follow along, if you will. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord is God. It is he that made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. This is the word of God for the people of God. Before I begin, let me remind you also about the way that we're doing our stewardship and our giving during this pandemic time when we are limited in what we can do in this place. There are boxes for tithes and offerings over here by this door and in the back on your way out. Feel free to drop your gifts in those and also you may give online and you may mail your checks in as well as many of you have done. We're we're a little behind. We're in our summer slump time, so just examine your own hearts and see what you can do and help us to uh, to move through the summer and to finish strong as we move into the fall season and hopefully more folk back in town. This time of year, we often focus on a camp meeting theme and worship at Noonan First United Methodist Church. It's a little different this year being somewhat scattered and having some of our folks here, but I still want us to think about this for the next few weeks. As a camp meeting time, our worship has already become a bit more informal because of the restrictions that we are under, but think of it as camp meeting. Some of you are familiar with that. We're not going to put any sawdust on the floor. We're not going to turn the air conditioners off. We're not going to put funeral home fans in the pews. None of those things. You have to use your imagination a little bit Go back to a camp meeting time. If you've never been there, look it up sometime and then see what it's all about. We're going to talk about it for a few minutes today before we move into our theme. Our worship theme for these camp meeting Sundays will be based on Oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing, the hymn that we sang earlier that David played so beautifully. We're going to take each of those stanzas and move through this and see what kind of themes are there for us. So camp meeting time again, it seems like yesterday that last summer was here, that seems so long ago though in other ways, a different world, a different way of living our lives, so much has changed. But we want to begin with that song, that hymn that some have referred to as the National Anthem of Methodism. While doing some research about the origin of this hymn, I stumbled across some references for music and for the origins of camp meeting itself. There's an interesting story, backstory there. In the early days of Methodism, there was an educational divide between the British Methodists and the Methodists in the USA. Regarding his ministry in this nation, Bishop Francis Asbury reportedly said, I have not spoken against learning, I have only said that it cannot be said to be an essential qualification to preach the gospel. The lack of an educated clergy and people contributed to the modification of the text as well and the musical content of the hymns and a new repertory came out of hymns that they felt like would be easier to sing on the frontier in this nation and 
So it was different in some way from what our British ancestors in the faith were singing and talking about. Part of this involved combining preaching and music and dancing in the camp meeting. Can you imagine that? Song and dance were the convert's natural response to the Wesleyan doctrine of grace, void of the standards imposed by the literate and the sophisticated. You always have to be careful for the literate and sophisticated, don't we? By the second decade of the 19th century, the hymnody and the worship that was performed by the camp meeting church on the frontier, improvised meeting houses sprung up. These arbor-like things had their beginnings in Kentucky, we think, spread to the Carolinas, to Ohio, to Georgia, and elsewhere. And this description of the appeal of camp meeting was given in, uh, in some of the early writings. The hymns were in ballad style. They were couched in simple language that everyone could understand. They were f- simple and folk-like in character. The refrain was most important, and it had to be something easily singable that people could hang on to and would go through the week humming and singing and sharing with other people. Collections of these camp meeting hymns were not easy to find. There were folks who were opposed to this whole idea. There were bishops who felt like it was a violation of the rules to sing in such an informal way and the dance and the other things. And, but when people began to hear this, it was sort of instantly contagious, as one writer said. People latched onto it. They liked this kind of music, they liked this informality of, of worship. By 1825, the outdoor camp meeting was almost exclusively a Methodist tradition. It's something we can claim, and I think claim proudly. The camp meeting activity continued, particularly among the Pentecostal holiness branch of our Wesleyan tradition, into the beginning of the 20th century. Concerning the church's official acceptance of this kind of music and this style of worship, worship, Ellen Jane Lorenz and Glory Hallelujah talked about it just a little bit. She said it's hard to believe, but true, that officially the Methodists never accepted camp meeting and never sanctioned a single revival songbook. There were rules and warnings against these revival songbooks. As I said a moment ago, the bishops, some of the leaders of our church, didn't like this kind of worship, this kind of music, this kind of revival and and camp meeting. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing is the most characteristic, the most widely known, the most sung hymn, often sung hymn, and the Wesleyan revival, the Wesleyan movement. And with few exceptions, it's the opening hymn in any collection of Wesleyan hymns that you'll find anywhere. It's usually number one. In our current hymn, it's number 57, but it's the first hymn in the book. A little background now about the context in which this hymn was birthed. John and Charles Wesley were reporting their conversion experiences to their mother, Susanna. And she didn't know what to make of it. She thought they were already okay. They were already Christians. They already had the faith. And she was puzzled. She said, I think you have fallen into an odd way of thinking. Sounds like something maybe a mother would say to a child when she wasn't sure what the child was up to. You say that within a few months you had no spiritual life and no justifying faith. And I heartily rejoice if you had this experience and have come to this strong and lively hope in God's mercy through Christ. Not that I can think that you were totally without saving faith before. And another thing... To be sensible, to know we have it, is important. So she was 
questioning what they meant by having a conversion experience when they had already grown up in the church and knew the ways of the faith. But at the same time, she didn't want to pour cold water on what was going on in their hearts and and in their lives. Charles was very sensible of having it, of course. His life changed. It changed drastically after this experience he had. And he gained victory over his temper and victory over some of his destructive habits by the power of the Spirit. He began to spread the news of what had happened to him and new vitality came into his preaching. And he looked for ways to expand his ministry. Charles Wesley, and I didn't know this until recently about it, often would go to Newgate Prison and when prisoners were to be executed the next day, he would spend the night in the cell with these men praying with them and talking to them and listening to them and trying to comfort them in some way with with what they had to face the next day. Spending their final hours, his heart had been changed. And on the first anniversary of his conversion, Charles Wesley wrote an 18 stanza hymn describing his praise to the Lord. It was titled for the anniversary day of one's conversion. And the first stanza began, glory to God and praise God and love. And stanza seven began, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. And later he would change this around and that would become the first stanza, the first verse. And he was saying, not wouldn't it be great if we had a thousand people here to sing God's praise, but wouldn't it be something if I had a thousand tongues, a thousand mouths, a thousand voices in myself to sing God's amazing praise. And across the century, when tongues have expressed praise to an all-knowing, all-powerful, almighty God, tongues have frequently employed the timeless words of Psalm 100. And that's why we read it a moment ago. And I would encourage you to, uh, to read it again. Perhaps you are familiar with it in the King James Version. That's how I grew up understanding and, and learning this psalm. But I want us to think about this psalm for just a little bit. Think of it as if we had... A thousand tongues to sing God's praise. The psalm is one of only a few in which its use is noted in the superscription. That means in the line above the psalm in scripture, you'll find a little description of what the psalm is for and and how it's to be used. That's not true with all the psalms. Remember that the book of Psalms is often referred to as the hymn book of the children of Israel. The superscription for Psalm 100 simply states... A psalm for the thank offering. A psalm for the thank offering. And that was a sacrifice offered when the individual or the community wished to express their thanksgiving to God for all that God had done for them. Such sacrifices were consumed. That is, the entire slaughtered animal was to be eaten. The priest would would cook or they would build the fire they would slaughter the animal and it was like a great religious barbecue in the temple courtyard now according to the law in Leviticus the Thanksgiving sacrifice had to be completely eaten the day that it was sacrificed and the day it was offered this meant that extravagance gluttony for a day was a requirement I started thinking about imagine that what's up with those people would we ever do anything like that Set aside a day every year, call it Thanksgiving, and mark it by gluttony. None of us would ever indulge in that kind of thing. 
But it was a big deal. Psalm 100, a communal psalm. Thanksgiving throughout the psalm is associated with public worship in the temple. Come into his presence. Enter his gates. Come into his courts. All the imperative verbs are in the plural in the Hebrew, a fact that gets lost sometimes in our English translations. Biblical religion, both the Old and New Testaments, is always communal in nature. And that's one reason I think this has been so hard on us throughout this pandemic is we've missed that communal nature of our faith in some ways. We found ways to compensate online and Zooming and all kinds of other things. But there's something so vitally important about being together to represent our historical faith. Our faith is a communal thing. It's not just a me and Jesus got our own thing going kind of faith. There's more to it than that. It is a necessity involving other persons, particularly fellow believers. And I think it's very difficult, if not impossible, to be a Christian in isolation. Now, of course, there are exceptions, folks who are imprisoned and away doing research and working by themselves, but very difficult to be a Christian in isolation. Different elements of thanksgiving are noted in this short psalm. Joyful noise, gladness, singing, praise, and blessing. Psalm 100 indicates that thanksgiving is not just something that we do verbally, but it involves our whole being, our attitudes, and our actions. Thanksgiving is, as someone has said, thanks living. We either live with an attitude of gratitude throughout our lives or we don't. And we miss so much when we fail to be grateful. Two motivations given in this psalm for praise and thanksgiving to God. The first stress is God is creator and preserver of human life. We need to hang on to that. In, in this time particularly when human life is so fragile... Verse 3, know that the Lord is God. It is He that has made us and not we ourselves. We are His. We are His people. We are the sheep of His pasture. Thanksgiving just flows from our being and our acknowledgement of who God is. And then another motivation for praise and thanksgiving is God's fidelity in history. God's faithfulness. Verse 5, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. God the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's always been that way. It'll always be that way. That's a pretty good motivation, isn't it, for thanksgiving, this faithfulness, this fidelity of our God. Sometimes there are days and there are occasions, there are circumstances when we just don't feel very grateful. We're not motivated to give thanks. We don't feel grateful when we're hurting physically or emotionally. Perhaps when we've lost a job, um, a means of income. When we're grieving over the death of someone close. When we're worried about how our children are turning out or, or have turned out. When our parents and older folk in our life become disabled. But the Apostle Paul exhorts us pushes on us, reminds us to give thanks in all circumstances. And we've talked about that before, not for all circumstances, but in all circumstances we find ways to give thanks to our God. How do we do it? By calling to mind Psalm 100. Remember the motivations that we have for thanking God that we find there. Number one, God created us. We are His. He will preserve us. Always. Number two, God is faithful and constant. The same yesterday 
and today and forever. This knowledge and assurance can empower us to give thanks even in the face of the greatest adversities. It's not as easy to give thanks right now as it may have been five or six months ago. And that can determine our attitude toward all of our circumstances when we find those things for which to be thankful, those things that sustain us, those things that move us through the troubled waters. Life is determined, <clears throat> excuse me, to a great extent by our attitudes. Dr. Victor Frankl, an Austrian psychiatrist, and you may have heard of him, he was confined for so long to the German concentration camps. And he describes his experience in a book called Man's Search for Meaning. It's a classic. You've probably got a copy of it. I'm sure there's some around this building somewhere. And in one marvelous paragraph, he says, We who lived in the concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a person except for one thing, and that is the human freedom, the last of the human freedom, the ability to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. And when we hear that, we might think of the gates of heaven. And certainly that's appropriate. It would be an interesting way to consider things. How grateful to enter God's heaven. Our salvation, of course, not only assures that, but changes our life here, determines the depth of our gratitude, helps us to comprehend the amazing grace of God that surrounds us and makes us who we are. But what other possible responses can we give for such a profound gratitude? The gates that are referred to in Psalm 100 are the gates of the temple. That was such a high and holy and sacred place and institution for these folks. How about the doors to this sanctuary? And I know some of you are not physically here, but the doors, so to speak, to the place where you are worshiping. And before we could enter, what if there were angels standing at all these doors? And they inquired of us, for what are you thankful? And we had to come up with something meaningful in our life, and then the gates would open. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. You can bang on them all day, day long, all night long, but without thanksgiving. How do we get in? The first one of us approaches in response to the angels. The following reply is given, I'm thankful for my work. I'm thankful for my daily task. I'm thankful for a reason to get up in the morning. Things to see about and things to do. John Wesley prayed that famous prayer. It became famous after he prayed it. Let me not live to be useless. And I think in some way that's a prayer for all of us. We don't want to live to be useless. There needs to be something to do even if it's staying most of the day in our chair or in our bed as some folks are confined and praying for others. Wonderful, proclaimed the angel. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. And the second one approaches and says, I'm thankful for my friends. There's a simple, there was a Greek who was, guy who was sort of on the edge of things, Socrates and some of the others, just on the edge of the circle of some of the great ones. And so one day someone asked him what he most wished to give thanks for. 
And he answered that, being who I am, I have had the friends that I have. Hallelujah, proclaimed the angel, enters gates with thanksgiving. And the third one approaches and said, I'm thankful for home and I'm, I'm thankful for shelter. Even if I've sheltered in place so long, the walls are starting to close in on me. I'm thankful for home and shelter. Home is a place that's more than just a place. One of my favorite movies of all time is Places in the Heart. Where is our home really? What does that look like? He said, in my house I'm sheltered from rain and wind and storms and from extremes of heat and cold. But because there's a hole in my house, I'm also sheltered from loneliness. I've been caught out in all sorts of storms, he said. But home has always been a port of refuge for the home I grew up in, for the home I'm now responsible for, for my church home and for my heavenly home. I want to say thank you. Lord God, thank you. Marvelous, proclaimed the angel, enter his gates with thanksgiving. And then a young family approaches. One child walks beside them and another is in their arms. In response to the angel's inquiry, the couple replies, We are grateful to Almighty God for his love that has claimed us and our children and brought us through the waters of baptism. We know to whom we belong. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, proclaimed the angels. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Many others approach and offer their thanksgiving for some aspect of God's goodness and grace. And finally a young man approaches. And in response to the angels, who at first terrified him as they would many of us if they were here at the doors waiting to decide if we get in or not, he replied, I'm thankful that because... God so loved, God gave. Let me borrow Paul's expression, he said, which seems so inadequate. Thanks be to God for God's inexpressible gift, even Jesus the Christ. Amen and amen, proclaimed the angels. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Oh, by the way, how do we get in here this morning? Or how did we get to those places where we are worshiping this day? Did we sneak in the back door of bitterness and resentment? The side door of ingratitude? Or did we enter his gates with thanksgiving and enter his courts with praise, blessing his name? If each of us had a thousand tongues to sing God's praises, would we still need more. Amen.